Welcome to the Crazy Might Work podcast, where we celebrate authors, entrepreneurs, innovators, inventors, and scientists who live at the very frontiers of human consciousness and possibility. We discuss their moments of breakthrough and analyze the strategies they use to enhance their own thinking and challenge conventional wisdom. Our guest today is a world-leading expert in leadership and building high-performance teams. He is here to tell us how we can be better leaders by mastering the ability to shift social context. He is the author of How NASA Builds Teams and former director of NASA's astrophysics division. He launched and then repaired the Hubble telescope, which has given humanity an eye on the universe that previous generations would never have dreamed possible. NASA awarded him a very unusual second Outstanding Leadership Medal, and he was awarded the Distinguished Service Medal, which is only awarded when the contribution is so extraordinary that other forms of recognition would be inadequate. He received Presidential Rank Awards from Ronald Reagan and from Bill Clinton for sustained superior accomplishment. Please join me in welcoming the person that has changed the course of NASA's culture more than any other, Charlie Pellerin. Thank you. Charlie, you describe, as you describe your journey, you reference an early conversation with John Mather, NASA's Nobel Laureate in Physics, who said to you, Charlie, I'm convinced that half the cost of a project is socially determined. What did he mean by that, Charlie? Well, I have to give you a little context. Uh, John was the project scientist for uh, a satellite, which he also was a principal investigator with an experiment. And uh, it was called Cosmic Background Explorer. So you may know that uh, so Arno Penzias and Bob Wilson, Bob Wilson happens to be a friend of mine, were working at Bell Labs and saw this very strange radio noise. And what they were trying to do is use microwave antennas for telephones, and they wanted to get this noise out. So they couldn't figure it out. They even tried things like scrubbing the bird guana out of the, out of the thing, and some years later, uh, the person I know best for this is uh, a guy at MIT, uh, Alan Guth, who at that time, interestingly enough, he was a postdoc hoping to get a professorship, and he put together the mathematics to show this was probably the flash that created the universe, uh, redshifted by the expansion of space and time per general relativity. And, and and so so uh, this was uh, and by the way he did the math to do the calculation down to the first ten to the minus forty three seconds so that's an interesting thing but to confirm that we needed to know whether it was really a black body spectrum and this satellite John was project science for was intended to do that these were the projects that I loved the deepest because I'm I'm a physicist and I'm an experimental physicist and historically physics has advanced with experiments. Uh, you know, I'm sure you know that quantum mechanics came out of the simple two-slit experiment. Relativity came out of a, the Michelson-Morley experiment. So an experiment that could do something new is just an important thing. So John was in my office, and by the way, he's uh, not only a brilliant scientist. I'm pretty sure someone told me John scored 800 on his graduate record exam. I think I did 675 and was glad to get that. And so, uh, but he's also just a, a, a really sound person. So when he speaks, I listen. At the time, the satellite had the satellite has originally started at a price tag of thirty million dollars, and that's in my my contracts budget. 
it was running up to near 100 now. And usually things get canceled by that point. And part of the reason was that we had a mandate that everything had to fly on the space shuttle. So it was designed to fly on the space shuttle. That went away and it much made much more sense to launch it out of Vandenberg on an ELV, expendable launch vehicle. So Goddard's engineers had to reduce the weight by a factor of two with a pretty mature thing. So I invested in this, stuck, stuck, stuck by these people. And meanwhile, the uh, civil service part of the budget, which is not the, which is a part budgeted separately from me, was going up to like 500, 500 million. This was a very, very expensive project. So I had John in my office and said, what the hell is going on here with these cost increases? And he made this comment. And I, at the time, the way I interpreted it was, it was an in-house project, a very vertically integrated. Now I like this kind of thing and could, did it when I could. It's the same thing Musk does with Tesla. And, uh, but, uh, <clears throat> It's difficult to manage. You don't have the clean interface with the workforce you do when you have an external contract and all these documents. So I didn't think much about it until years later when I was seriously exploring the idea of social context affecting technical performance. And that is stuck in my mind and it just came back up. And and, and so that's really what it was. It, it, it's sort of one of these things. Did you ever have an occasion where someone put a thought in your head? And it just sits there kind of ruminating for maybe 10 years and then it bursts up again. That's what happened here. So, Charlie, is that the central premise of how NASA builds teams, this idea that social context is dominant? Well, so, again, I've got to tell a little background. So the, uh, the Hubble mirror failure, I think, uh, shocked us all to be an understatement. And uh, the Failure Review Board was chaired by General Luke Allen, who was at that time the director of Jet Propulsion Lab. And their experience of NASA was more like a contractor. Otherwise, this report might have been quite different. So, so I, the first when I started working as a consultant, it was the first time I saw how freely NASA government managers rage at the contractors. I've never seen this in, in my programs directly. And so uh, when, he, when he looked at what had gone wrong with this flawed mirror, uh, when he went to the Congress to, to explain how he spent 15 years and $5 billion in today's dollars and built a worthless telescope, and it was truly worthless, he said the root cause was a leadership failure, and I was leader of the team. So uh, anyway, uh, the, 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 that didn't get any traction in NASA particularly. No one bothered me about this because nobody saw anything I'd done wrong and nobody understood what a leadership failure meant and how I could connect to a technical failure. Meanwhile, I, I covertly, uh, this is a whole nother story, against the direct orders of the head of our appropriations and the NASA administrator, covertly put together the servicing mission that ultimately fixed Hubble. And I, I, I reprogrammed money that I could have been illegally charged for doing it, but at the time I was didn't care much about that kind of thing. So so anyway, uh, I got promoted up to the top of NASA. Uh, I'm like the number three person, and I pretty much hated it. Um, what I like to do is work with scientists and engineers to build things, especially really complex things. And back to John's satellite for a minute, that had a mirror cooled to two degrees above absolute zero with superfluid helium. These are hard things to do. This is what we love doing. 
So I'm trying to figure out what to do with myself. And uh, I think for the first time, I was kind of lost. I, I was in a big job. I didn't feel like retreating back to a lower level job particularly. I didn't want to work for industry particularly. So it's a longer story, but uh, NASA tried. I was going to leave the agency, and they bribed me to stay with a sabbatical. So I went to University of Colorado and, uh, and, and got a professorship in the business school. And part of the reason they did that was I treated the grantees in Colorado well scientifically, but also I've got a degree, business degree from Harvard. So I started to explore this idea. And what I wanted to do was find a principle that could organize the thinking. So, so physicists hate lists. We, we like uh, ideas and we like uh, equations and formulas. We like to, to reason from first principles. If you wanted to ask me, the, the, the one thing you could do to improve is try and catch yourself when you're reasoning by analogy and stop doing that and go back to the basics. Just to give you a little simple sidebar on this, we're rebuilding our house after a fire and these builder keeps asking for decisions. And I just say, let's, let's go dig up the criteria. And so when you surface the criteria, like for example, what color to paint the house, some people agonize over this for weeks. And I said, no, just here's the criterion has got to blend into the background and not be obnoxious. So you can paint it any of these colors. And he said, everybody else wants to paint half the house and see how it looks. Well, if, if I could find a criterion, you could do that. But I don't have one, so paint it whatever. So so that kind of thinking. So uh, anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm plugging along. And I, I was... I took the summertime and I took, uh, at the time I, I was I was laboring under a flawed idea. I believe that popular business books were useful and they're not. And the reason they're not is because they don't create behavioral change. And, and the bigger problem is that when you read them, you think you're doing something useful, but at the end of the day, nothing happens. And I observed my clients when I'm working as a consultant, some book would come out and I'd watch the CEO give it to everybody then I watched what they did with what it's advocated to do, and they did nothing. So anyway, I didn't know that yet. So I took the popular business books, and they're all the same. They all have anecdotes about somebody, Bill Gates or Andy Grove or somebody. Then someplace in there's a list of the one, two, three, four, five, six things you're supposed to do. I didn't realize that these were nonsense yet. So I put these lists on the wall in the summertime. And I began to look for some interconnection, and I started using coordinate systems from physics. And there's lots of them. There's, you know, simple coordinates and very complex coordinates. So I'm trying to use my mathematical background to find something that links all this together in, in a way like, uh, like Newton's second law, F equals MA, lets us do mechanics. You can take that little formula, and you can calculate landing a person on the moon. There's no relativistic effects involved. I tried to find something like that. So I, I did this for about a month and a half, and nothing worked, and I gave up. And the day that I gave up, I picked up the newspaper, and there was a Dilbert cartoon. And it said, every consultant makes his living with a two-by-two two matrix. I said, I made this too hard. It's an XY system. But which one? At the time, I was reading Young's work on personality development, translated into English, and he said something that seemed very profound to me. We build our personalities on two innate preferences, innate meaning present at birth, like handedness, 
One is the information we prefer to use, and I knew there were two kinds. There's basically intuitive information, a sensed information, that was straightforward. And the second is the way we prefer to make decisions, and that's either with emotional deciding or logical deciding. So I took this thing, a little coordinate system, and I started putting it on stuff. I started out putting it on NASA projects I'd managed, and I could map it out, and I began to see a pattern where projects that were very successful, and I had some that were really just total examples of, of effectiveness, they filled all four, and the ones that were failures, like Hubble, had vacant pieces. So I got the idea that this is some kind of completeness you need, and I labeled these things with uh, with names that, that matched up with the human needs hierarchy, which aligned very well with this. So they were the, the, the first, I call them dimensions just because it's better than quadrants, the first one is, I call it cultivating. It's about uh, appreciating people and valuing people. That is our, one of our very deepest needs. The second one is about relationships. I called it including. The third one's about vision, and the fourth one's about organization. So what I started to do next was I, I started to put this on uh, proposals. I had an occasion where uh, the, a contractor I'd worked on several projects was when I was back at NASA asked me to come out and help them find out why they're losing some of these proposals. So I, I, I went out there not knowing what I was going to do, and I thought, well, let's just 4D the problem. So I walked into the vice president's office and made the things, explained to him what's in the... By the way, the two that are relevant for technical proposals are only the visioning, which is about performance maximization, and the, the organization, which is about cost minimization. So... I said, what did you propose? And I put the marks on the chart. And then I said, what did the government pick and put the marks on the chart? And I said, here's what happened. You you picked these outlandish, expensive, out-of-the-box things, and the government picked these safe, the things that could be done within budget. Do you see the problem? And they said, yeah. So that led to seven years of consulting with proposal teams. And I could go into a, I'm talking, I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about proposals for $1 to $10 billion programs. I could sit down with them in a couple of hours and find out where their team's social context is, where their belief base is. We could discern the customers, and if it didn't match, they would actually change out the people in real time on my say-so, which is a big deal for a consultant. So I won them several billion dollars of uh, of contracts. The biggest mistake I made, I should have asked for a percent of the win instead of an hourly fee. But anyway, <laughs> so, so, so I kept playing with this thing. And uh, the, the next thing that I, I wanted to take data. So, you know, I'm a scientist. We like information. So it's a longer story, but I figured out a way. I, I thought about how to, 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 to measure the, the social context. And one of, the, one of the things that was very influential for me in this process, you know, if, if you, when I was a professor, if you go to lunch with an academic, the one thing you're going to get is a book recommendation. So every lunch with an academic gets a book recommendation. I'm having lunch with the other faculty there. And someone said, you ought to read the Challenger launch decision. Well, I had a payload on Challenger. I was very close to it. And I thought I understood it as a technical failure. And that book, changed everything, that there was a sociologist who was made a member of the Failure Review Board that argued persuasively that it was the social context that caused it. And that's another story. 
This got me thinking about social context, and one of the things she talked about was normalization of deviance. This is where a behavior becomes deviant, and it's unnoticed because of our tribalism. Today, we have what I think I would argue is a deviant political party that's picked up this group thing from each other, and it's deviant in absolute terms, but to them, it, they don't see it because of... So, so how do you measure something that people can't see? So I'm pondering this, and I got the idea to measure against a standard. So I built online tools that measured the eight behaviors that align with the system of thinking against defined standards. And what I found was that, uh, that there was an incredible correlation between the scores on this tool and the team performance. I'd go talk to the team leader, whatever. But, but the biggest single finding in this, the most surprising thing, was people who repeated this this tool's 10 questions, and it's a learning tool. I, I made it to take data, but I think there's a teacher buried in me. So I put in there information why we're doing this. I, I like to know why. So I explained what the behavior is about, why it's important, what it looks like, measure it. People who use this tool, for which takes 15 minutes online to do for 10 questions, the median, an hour to process, boosted team performance on average of 4% every time they did this. This was more effective than the workshops I was doing or anything else I was doing. This blew my mind. So uh, you want to talk about the, the, the shocking finding, that was it. So what I did with that, I sat down and wrote this manuscript for my book because I thought this belongs to the world. And the second thing I did, I took all our intellectual property, which had been held under lock and key, and made it all publicly available. Everything we owned, all the processes, tools, methods, workshop slides, all became public domain. So, so, um, and, and so, so after this, I started. I think this has been used in seventy-five countries. And as I look at failures of every kind, it's always social context. I'm not going to claim it always is. I think it might be. I'm just going to say everything I ever looked at was. And I've looked at things as disparate as what was the root cause of the explosion of Fukushima Daiichi, social context. I looked at the root cause of the 737 MAX, social context. I looked at the root cause of the uh, uh, the, the crash that everybody studied on the Tenerife Island, social context. And so the, the, the forces, so what I conclude from this is, that you know there are, there are basically four forces in physics. The the ones your gravity is is incredibly weak. It is so weak that I can counteract the entire Earth just with my muscles, but it's infinite range. So second force is electromagnetism, and you think of that as magnets, but it's actually more more interesting. It's what it's imbalances in electromagnetism that gives substances their strength. So when you push on the table, you're resisting electromagnetic force. There are two others that mostly only interesting to physicists. The strong force, which is, is about the nucleon, very short range, really destroy everything. And then the, the <clears throat> little bit mysterious, the weak force, which mediates uh, radioactive decay. So what, what interests me about this is that of the four forces, to study those as a physicist, I was seven years in graduate school. I can teach you everything you need to know about this fifth force that is actually more important in human endeavors in about a matter of hours. So, so it just it overwhelms everything. It, it it's uh, Diane Vaughn's book. 
had a sentence about this that I that really spoke to me. What she said was the 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 root cause of Challenger's failure was an, was a force that is invisible and unacknowledged. And the fifth force field, the social context field, is both. And so the way it, the way it works is the way we behave collectively and tribalism is innate in everything we do sets up a force field that affects how we behave. It sounds like a circular argument, but that's how it works. So how do you measure it? You measure behaviors. How do you modify the social context? You shift the behaviors. And so, so, so uh, anyway, the, so you mentioned NASA's culture. So I'm doing this work sort of by myself. I've got a little company, a couple people, I'm mostly working. My first clients were in the accounting industry. I'm working with aerospace companies on their proposals. I'm, I'm kind of laid back. And one day, uh, people at NASA called me up and said, we've had two back-to-back -back Mars failures. Uh, the administrator says he's going to fire us if we can't improve teamwork. And you're the guy we thought knew how to do this because they've been sort of following my work. That led to uh, a contract, a very, 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 very large contracts. And 1,500 teams voluntarily did this work. Uh, I refused to work with people who didn't want to do it. There's about something like 5% of managers that don't believe, you know, the way you get performance out of people is beating them up and criticizing them. Um, I just said, if you don't want to do the work, don't waste both our time with this. And so the change was so substantial that using our tools and, and data analysis methods, my, my whole team's engineers and physicists, we love to play with data. Uh, we actually showed definite movement in the whole agency, and it was affecting people that we'd never worked with. So the social context field in an institution like a NASA center, so we found direct correlation between the amount of change in, in teams for the first time that we dealt with them in different institutions with how much work that institution had done with our processes. So that's the sort of short story of it.